Um, if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm chapter 3. Psalm chapter 3. Uh, as you're turning to Psalm chapter 3, it's page 432 in the Bibles in the pews there, or in the chairs there. Um, you'll notice that I put a bunch of lines here for notes. Um, so when I teach high schoolers every single week, I actually tell them, guys, go back to the back. We have a stack of paper. We got a stack of pens. I want you to take notes. And so I want to encourage you today to take notes. Write out whatever sticks out in your heart or mind as we're looking at Scripture. If you're one of those people that's a doodler, do we have any doodlers here like you have to doodle to actually pay attention? Yeah, that, that, that's me. That's me, believe it or not. I know uh, they probably all believe it quite well. Uh, but I'm one of those people that I have to doodle when I'm taking notes, draw little Snoopies and whatever because that helps me focus. So there's no shame in that. But I want to encourage you to take notes as we are walking through Scripture this morning. Um, before we jump into Psalm chapter 3, I just want to share a little bit of a little story, a true story about my family and someone that was very special to our family um, quite some years ago. So uh, several years ago, I've been married for going on 26 years, and in our early marriage, before we had kids, my wife and I met this gal, and, uh, and her name was Lucy. And Lucy, um, man, she just, she... She was down and out. She was uh, homeless and lived in a shelter. And for some time, um, my wife and I, we thought about it. We're like, you know what? We want to invite Lucy into our home. And so Lucy came to live with us. And, uh, and it was actually a long-term arrangement. Um, it was before we had kids. And then we had my son Micah, and Lucy was still there. And we had Claire, and Lucy was still there. And we had Eli, and Lucy was still there. And uh, Lucy was just part of the family. I mean, she just was great. Um, we got her own bed. Uh, she was just great. Was, loved everybody. Everybody loved her. And, uh, and everything was great. Then all of a sudden, Lucy started acting weird. She just started acting weird. Um, like, she started, like, every once in a while, just climbing on the countertops. Weird. And this is true story. I'll just start climbing on the countertops. And we're like, what in the world are you doing, Lucy? And she would get down. And then Lucy started licking the carpet. And we're like, something is wrong with Lucy. And, uh, and then uh, one day, my wife had spent the whole day baking cookies for a church Christmas cookie exchange. And Lucy ripped open the cookies and ate, like, half the cookies. And we're like, something's wrong. So we, we took Lucy to the doctor, and the doctor's like, I'm sorry, but Lucy's old, and there's nothing you could do for her. So they put her down, and then we put her in a box and took her home and buried her in her backyard. I know, it's sad, right? And we love Lucy. And Lucy loved us. And if you haven't figured it out by now, Lucy was our calico cat. But here's the thing. Knowing the context is very important to that story. Wouldn't you all agree? Because as we are 
telling a story. I talked about this gal who was homeless and lived in a shelter. And I talked about this gal who became part of our family and was there for my kids growing up. And then she got weird licking carpet and she got weird, all these different things. And knowing the backstory, knowing the context is so important. And today we're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 3. And the reason why I want to share that with you is because we're going to look at Psalm chapter 3, but we're actually going to spend majority of this morning actually looking at the backstory so you understand Psalm chapter 3. Because knowing the backstory, knowing the context is so important for us to really grasp Scripture. Now, sometimes it's very clear what the context is. Sometimes we've got to do a little investigation. It's not always clear. And there's different scholars who compare different scriptures and say, okay, this is what they were meaning by this or this. And I would encourage you to do that. But today, just work with me. And let's just look at context. In fact, I want to encourage you, before we even look at context, I want to just teach you... Um, yeah, this is like I'm teaching a little class on how to study scripture this morning. We're going to look at the W's, the basic W's of studying God's word. If this thing will work. It's not working back there, Nathan. There it goes. The basic method of studying God's word, the who, what, when, where's, and why's. And when we're studying scripture, we need to understand one thing. Context is everything. And I mean that fully respectfully, because I had a Bible professor that always said this, a, a scripture can never mean what it never meant. You get that? A scripture can never mean what it never meant. And sometimes through scripture, we recognize that it did have double meanings, but it meant it then. But we can't just superimpose our own thoughts into it and make it twisted to say what we want it to say. So we need to know the context, the who, what, when, where, and whys. And so I start with stuff like this. What type of literature is this? This is a basic question that many of us might recognize. What type of literature is this? The scripture is made up of many different types of literature forms. There's poetry, there's narrative, there's prose discourse, which is the concept of trying to convince someone a, 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 a train of thought. It's really just basically teaching doctrine and teaching truth. And scripture is made up of these. And so knowing what type of literature it is, then we get to look at who is the speaker, who is the recipient. This is important. Because if we're taking scripture, we need to grasp that first because we need to understand that the Lord was using them in this circumstance. And their circumstance may or may not always directly apply to us. And this is important because so many people take scripture and they even take promises of scripture, which we can take principles and draw from those, many of those. But we'll take other promises and try to make them our own. In fact, we have verses like, Jeremiah 29, 11, which I absolutely love. You know the one that says, I know the plans I have for you, the plans that prosper you. You know that verse? And many of us will make that our life verse. And yet, we don't want to take the rest of the baggage that came with that verse. The baggage was this. Israel was being crushed. They feel like God had abandoned them. They felt like everything had fallen apart. Jeremiah the prophet, they call him the weeping prophet. Why? Because he never brought good news and he cried all the time. And he's like, listen, 
I'm going to tell you this good news even though it doesn't feel like this. God has plans for you, plans to prosper you and not abandon you. But if you, know the full, if you don't know the full context of that, you just sit there going, God promised me that life is going to be good. We need no context. We know who he's speaking to. Because otherwise, we want to take that promise, but we don't always want to take this other promise. There was another promise given in Scripture that I don't think any, almost none of us claim here. It's the one that says, And a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, for he is God with us. Who here has ever claimed that promise? None of us. Why? Because we recognize it's not directly to us. And so when we're looking at Scripture, we need to look at who is the speaker, who is the recipient, and what is going on in their life. What is the speaker saying, and what is the recipient hearing? Going back to, a text can never mean what it never meant. What specific circumstances are taking place in this situation? What is the, what in the, or when in the author's life and in history is this taking place? Where does this take place? Then, what does this text tell us about God? Before we jump to anything about ourselves, we need to work through these W's. Because let's be honest, how easy is it to read a text at home in your daily devotions and you jump to application about you first thing, like right away? Let's be honest. Who here does that really quickly? Yeah, I catch myself doing it. And we need to start understanding the context. And only after we have exhausted those first W questions should we move to personal application. And so as we are looking through Psalm chapter 3 today, I want you to wrestle through the who, what, when, where's, and then save the why why does this matter to me? Why do I care? Save that towards the end of the message. Can we do that? Just tuck that why aside. So if you on your notes, I would encourage you to write who, what, when, where. Who, what, when, where. Right at the top. And then as we are looking at Scripture, start filling in those dots as you are following along with me. And with that, let's look at Psalm chapter 3. As we start Psalm chapter 3, we see this little heading at the very beginning. This heading is called a superscription. It is a little uh, thing written at the very top of the text that give a little dialogue, a little background to that text. Now, many believe that this was written after, that little superscription was written after the actual psalm itself but it was written close enough in time where they could all understand that that was the time frame, that was the person who wrote it, that was the background. And so that superscription is this, a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? How many are saying of me, God will not deliver him? But you, Lord, are a shield around me. You're my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. 
I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me from every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. For the Lord, or from the Lord, comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Let's pray. Lord, this morning as we come and we break open this text, and we spend some time just working through the backdrop of this text, we pray that you will let people quickly forget things that you don't want them to remember that I might say, but impress upon them things that you want them to burn into their hearts. And this morning, as, as they're taking notes and we're walking through Scripture, I pray that we will rely as our foundation, your word. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So as we look at this text in Psalm chapter 3, we know from the superscription right away that who wrote it. Anybody know? David, a psalm of David while he was doing what? Does anybody have that there? This is question response. You guys can talk to me. I don't, online people don't care. You guys right here. Who is he? What's, what's happening? Running from Absalom. Absolutely. It's a psalm of David while he was running from Absalom. And as we are reading this, we can also understand that it is a psalm, a type of literature. A psalm was a song. A song that was sung, not only written out by poetry by David, but song sung by Israel as a time of celebration, although it was a song of lament. A song of lament, if you remember, I talked about it in January. A song of lament has four different key aspects. It is one that the psalmist cries out to God in prayer. They come to God in prayer. It's the first step is turning from an inward pain to upward prayer. Then lament is bringing your complaints to God by acknowledging the pain, acknowledging the ramifications of the pain, the confusion of the pain, the frustration of that pain, and the whys of that pain. It's the why God I don't understand. It is literally saying my enemy's against me, my people are terrifying, are running against me, everybody's saying I'm going to lose in this, and it's bringing those complaints and bringing those concerns but then it doesn't just stop there. It, makes, it moves to number three, which is make a request to God by asking him to rectify, vindicate, heal, or comfort you in that pain. And then fourthly, it is choosing to trust God's heart and worship him in the midst of the pain. It's acknowledging his character that God is good, God is faithful, God is trustworthy, God provides, God never fails. In fact, I know I said this back in January, but I want to repeat this. God is good. God is faithful. God is trustworthy. God provides. God never fails. Y'all get that for a second? God is good. God is faithful. God is trustworthy. God provides. God never fails. Let's all say that together. God is good. 
God is faithful. God is trustworthy. God provides. God never fails. No matter the circumstance that is happening here, this is a reminder that in all things, we need to remember the very character of God. Because a song of laments is bringing your sorrows to him and yet choosing to worship him in the midst of the sorrows. Choosing to worship in the midst of the pain. That doesn't mean it's easy. That just means you recognize that God is higher than your pain. And he is worth more and carries more weight than you will give to your sorrows. And so this is a text that is a psalm, that is a lament of David as he is running from Absalom, going through struggles. So let's just read through this text one more time. Lord, how many are my foes. How many rise up against me. Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me. My glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call it to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down, and I sleep, and I wake again, because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw, break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. So as we read that, we're going, okay, David's going through some tough times, some tough pain. Now I want to take a little time with you this morning and go through the backstory that brought David to the point of penning this psalm. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. In the Bibles and the chairs there, it's page 248. 2 Samuel chapter 12. As you see here, there might be a title or a heading in this passage for you that says, Nathan rebukes David. And what happened was, many of, us, many, many of us know the story, but if you don't, I want to share it. King David was king. At this point, he was king for approximately 30 years. 30 years. His whole kingship was 40 years. He saw, it was a time for kings to go to war. The chapter before says that, verse 1. It says it was time for kings to go to war, but David stayed behind. So David stayed behind, and when he stayed behind, he saw this woman bathing on a roof, a beautiful woman named Bathsheba. He told the servants, go get her. The servants are like, hey, isn't that woman married to Uriah the Hittite? He said, I don't care. I'm king. Come get her. I want her. He brought her in. He slept with her. She got pregnant. David thought he should like, try to fix this, and this is how he's going to fix it. He's going to bring Uriah back, have him come back from war to sleep with his wife. Then she could, he can be the dad. Uriah, being an honorable man, refused. He said, I will not do that while my soldiers are at war. So he slept outside in a tent. David's like, what am I going to do? So he talked with Joab. This is what I want you to do, Joab. We're going to send Uriah, Uriah uh, to go back to the battle line. While he's there, I want you to put him in the most desperate heat of the battle area, like the highest battle area. 
put them in there, put them on the front line. And as soon as it gets to the most, the heatest, the hottest part of battle, everybody pull back and let Uriah take the brunt of it all. They did it, Uriah died. David thought, I have it all worked out. But then all of a sudden, this prophet of God named Nathan, yeah, Nathan, I love that name. Nathan came before David, and he's like, David, let me tell you a little story. And he told him this little story about this rich man who had no, uh, he was a rich man, and he wanted to throw a party. And he was a poor man that lived in the same area, but had one little sheep. He loved that sheep. And he said, guess what? The rich man said, guess what? I want that sheep. So he stole the sheep. And said, I don't care what the poor man wants. I want that sheep. David got infuriated. He's like, how dare that guy? And Nathan said, you're that guy. You stole another man's wife, which is worth a billion times more than a sheep. And David, in that moment, he was broken. He was, like, struck. And look at verse 9 of chapter 12. Please follow along, because you're going you're to be reading a lot of Scripture today. Verse 9, and, and this is what Nathan said to David. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword. You took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. That is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity. And in the next several chapters... We start reading about calamity after calamity. In that chapter right there, the baby that Bathsheba was carrying of David's died. That was calamity number one. Death in the home. And then if we were to look at chapter 13, we see calamity number two. And we're not going to read the whole thing right here, but it, it starts out with, if we look at verse, uh, verse one, in the course of time... Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. This chapter is messed up because we see here that Amnon fell in love with his half sister Tamar and had a burning desire for him, and he knew it wasn't appropriate. And this sister, his half sister, was full sister to Absalom. Remember the one that David's running from? And so Amnon decided he's going to make this scheme. I'm going to act like I'm sick. And then I'm going to call for my sister to come take care of me. And then I'm going to take advantage of her. Pretty messed up. So Amnon did that. He called her in while he pretended to be sick. He took advantage of her and then sent her away like trash. Bible says he hated her after that. She left the chambers of Amnon. And it says she went to a heap of ash, rubbed it across her head. Ash was a sign of total grief. Like, woe is me, doomed am I. 
The worst of the worst am I. I, I. I'm just destroyed and I'm crushed beyond crushed. And she's wiping this ash across her head. Absalom sees the sister. And this is what he says. Look at me. Look at verse of uh, chapter 13, verse 20. Her brother Absalom said to her, Has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet for now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take it to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. When King David had heard all this, he was furious. And Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. You guys see that? David was furious. This baby had died. His daughter was taken advantage of by his son. Turmoil happening in the home. And David's response was fury. But we don't see that he did anything about it. Just like brushed it under the rug. Keep the peace. Keep the peace. It's okay. Keep the peace. And it says that Absalom hated Amnon in his heart. Verse 23 says, Two years later, when Absalom's sheep shears were at Baal Hazor near the border of Ephron, he invited the king's sons to come there. Absalom went to the king and said, Your servant has sheep shears come. Will the king and his attendants please join me? It was like the annual sheep shearing day. Kind of like we have, you know, fish day here. The annual sheep, sheep, you know, sheep shearing day. And just like here they drink beer. They were drinking beer there. Drinking wine, actually, to be more accurate. And they were, he's like, invite them all. Well, King David said, no, son, we don't want to impose on you. Things are too much. We don't want to impose on you. He goes, no, dad, I want to do this. Well, David's like, you know what? Basically, I don't have time for this, but you can do it. If you want to have this party, the sheep shearing party, say that like five times, the sheep shearing party. And you can go ahead and have it. And he goes, well, please make sure that my brother Amnon is there. He's like, why do you want Amnon? And Absalom didn't respond. He goes, but just, Dad, I want all my brothers here. Come on, Dad. Let, let him come. Let him come. And finally we read in Scripture, in verse 27, but Absalom urged him, so he sent with him Amnon and the rest of the king's sons. Absalom ordered, this, ordered his men and said, listen, men, when Amnon is in high spirits from drinking wine, I say to you, strike Amnon down and then kill him. Don't be afraid. Haven't I given you this order? Be strong and brave. So Absalom's men did to Amnon what Absalom had ordered. Then all of king's sons got up and mounted their mules and fled. So there's this party, the ship-shearing party going on. Amnon's drinking, and as he was getting pretty drunk, it sounds like, Absalom set the word, and all these, all these men of Absalom basically knocked him down, tore him down, and killed him. Man, isn't this family a family of calamity? A baby dying, sister who's raped by a brother, now a brother who's murdered by his brother. And so we hear 
If we keep reading, we would see that Absalom runs. In fact, look at verse 37. So Absalom fled, and he went to Talmai, son of Amahud, the king of Geshur. But King David mourned many days for his son. After Absalom fled and went to Geshur, he stayed there three years. And King David longed to, be, to go to Absalom, for he was consoled concerning Amnon's death. Joab, chapter 14, verse 1. So Joab's, Joab, son of Zariah, knew that the king's heart longed for Absalom. And so here we see that Absalom ran off to Geshur. Now, if you guys remember the who, what, when, where, why's, but holding off on the why's, talking about the where's, I'll just give you a little backdrop of what, where this is. Here is a diagram of Israel and the 12 tribes of Israel. You see right here in the middle is Jerusalem. It's on the southern side of Benjamin. Geshur is way up here in a land of Aram. And so when Absalom fled from Jerusalem, he ran up to, out of Israel, and he went up to the land of Geshur. He ran up there to stay as far away from dad as possible. But we read in verse 1 of chapter 14 that Joab, son of Zariah, knew that the king's heart longed for Absalom. It was that bittersweet moment of, I can't stand my son, but I love my son. Y'all know what I'm feeling? Sometimes I've had that with my own kids. I can't stand them and I love them. But multiply that times a million because of the circumstance that this has led up to. And so we read in chapter 14 that Joab, who was a general for David, also cousin to David, he goes, well, I know David has a heart for him, so I'm going to make this scheme, and I'm going to invite this wise woman to act sad, come before David, tell a story about two sons. One was murdered, and the other one fled, and how she wants her son back, and she misses her son and so she went before David and told this story to him. I, I miss my son, and he fled. And I want him back, but the law says he needs to be killed. And David's like, don't worry, he will not die. Let him come back to Jerusalem. Then it was found out that that story was actually about Absalom, that Joab had schemed it. How would you feel if you were David right here in this moment? Like, getting schemed, like you're... If another person comes in and tells me another story, I don't want to hear any more stories. Nathan did it. Now, this woman did it. I'm done. But came in and told a story, and now Absalom is coming back. Look at verse 23 of chapter 14. Then Joab went to Geshur and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. But the king said, he must go to his own house. He must not see my face. So Absalom went to his own house and did not see the face of the king. Basically this, listen, I will not hold the judgment of him upon him, but I will not extend forgiveness either. I will not hold the judgment of death that he deserves, but I don't want to see his face. And it says in Scripture that Absalom was in that state for two years, 
living in Jerusalem, but not allowed to go into the presence of the king, not allowed to go in the castle of the king, not to be able to live as royalty among the royal family. But he had to live as just a commoner in the area in his own house. And after two years, he came to Joab and said, Joab, why did you bring me back here if I'm living basically like a prisoner in my own town. And through scheming, he convinced Joab to go before the king to request amnesty and forgiveness for Absalom. And we read in verse 33, so Joab went to the king and he told him this. And what he told him was, hey, Absalom's claiming that he was right in what he did. And when the king summoned Absalom, he came in and bowed down with his face to the ground before the king. The king kissed Absalom. So here, Absalom's welcome back to the the family celebration. You don't have to bow down. You can stand up, give you a kiss on the cheek. Now you might be going, Pastor Nate, why are we going through all of this? Well, I'm glad you asked. The reason why we're going through all this is because this is the backstory, the backdrop to really what Psalm 3 is about, because we're not there yet. But follow along with me, because this next chapter is the root of Psalm chapter 3. Verse 1. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses, and with 50 men to run ahead of him. Now think about this. Chariot, horses, and 50 men. It was like the royal parade, like every day. He would say, all right, men, get get in front of me. Get on the chariot, horses. And as they're going out, you can just see the parade almost like going out. And it says in the next verse that he would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone would come with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, What town are you from? And he would answer, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, And If I were appointed as judge, as as ruler here in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case would come to me, and I would receive them, and they would receive justice. He would take his men out there, have this royal parade, stand out there next to the gates. People would come with their complaints from all over the tribes of Israel. And he would say, I'm sorry, i got to turn you away King David doesn't have anybody that will listen to you. But if I were king, if I was in charge, if I was in control, I would listen. You would have justice. Verse 5. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Absalom behaved this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. So he stole the hearts of the people. 
So here we see that not only would they come, if they came down and bowed down before them, he would come, grab them up, kiss them on the cheek like they were a brother. And it says he stole the hearts of the people. Remember, he's working through this scheme. He has this plan. Let's keep reading verse 7. And at the end of four years, this is for four years, Absalom said to the king, let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow that I made to the Lord while your servant was living in Geshur and Aram. I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. And the king said to him, go in peace. So he went to Hebron. He went to Hebron. And here on, your diag- on, on this map up here, you see Hebron's in the middle of Judah right there. Now, just give a little backdrop about Hebron. Hebron was actually the very first capital of Judah that David ruled in as king. He ruled from Hebron as the national capital for seven years. As he was ruling from Hebron, the other tribes of Israel were kind of nomads running and doing their own thing. And so after seven years, King David did a power play, and he moved his capital to Jerusalem to be a little bit more centrally located, really close to the land of Judah, just a hair outside. But it was an area where trade was going through regularly. It was really a prominent location. So he attacked the Jebusites, who were in that area, and he claimed it as his own. And so he made Jerusalem his capital. But Hebron was where he was crowned king. Let's keep reading. Then Absalom sent a secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the sound of trumpets, then say, Absalom is king. 200 men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. They had been invited as guests and went quite innocently, knowing nothing about the matter. But while Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor, to come from Gilo, his hometown. So the conspiracy gained strength, and Absalom's following kept on increasing. So here we read that Absalom said, okay, this is what I'm going to do. When I go into Hebron and you hear the trumpet sound, I want over all these people to start screaming out loud, the people that I've won their hearts over. I want them to shout out loud, Absalom is king in Hebron. Let it ring throughout the land. And a part of his scheme, he also invited 200 guests from Jerusalem. Now to be invited as a guest to a royal party was a big thing. So these were like diplomats and governing people and people of authority and he secretly invited them to this celebration down there. And then, not only that, but he also invited the counselor of David. That's Ahithophel. He invited him to come and say, come, come with me. All to show and demonstrate he had gained traction, even though he deceived all these people. And it worked. Can you imagine this calamity going on? This life of David? 
It says in verse 13, And a messenger came and told David, The heart of the people are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, Come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. And it is here, as he flees, in the next couple chapters, before Absalom dies, there's a time frame where David is hiding. And it is here where he pens Psalm chapter 3. More than likely, like David often did when he was hiding, he might have been hiding in a cave. Hiding for his life. Hiding from his son. The nation of Israel had a new king. He was a man, a king running in his own country. His baby died. His daughter raped. Son murdered. Son took over his throne. And everybody turned against him. And with that, let's turn back to Psalm chapter 3. As we just spend the last couple minutes, I just want to look back at Psalm chapter 3 as we know the backstory, the backdrop behind Psalm chapter 3. Lord, how many are my foes? How many are rising up against me? Everyone's saying, God will not deliver me. But you, Lord, you're a shield that's around me. You're my glory. You're the one who lifts my head high. And I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from the holy mountain. I lie down, and I sleep, and I wake up again because the Lord, you're, you're the one who sustains me, God. So I will not fear, though tens of thousands of people surround me and attack me from every side. God, I will not fear. So arise, Lord. I'm calling on you confidently. Arise, Lord. Help me. Deliver me, God. Strike my enemies on the jaw. Knock out their teeth, God. Knock them out. From you, Lord, come deliverance. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So may your blessings, oh God, be on your people. Can you hear the cry? In a moment where David was down and everything had gone wrong, 
every dream, every vision, everything that he had planned, every plan wiped away in a matter of just a couple years, everything. His future, gone. What he thought was supposed to look like, that's no more. And in that moment, he cried out to the Lord. He's like, Lord, everybody's saying, I have no hope. But I have you. So you, Lord, are my deliverance. You're my salvation. I'm asking you to do something. You lift up my head. You're my reputation. You're my glory, God. So strike them in the face and knock out their teeth. Because you are my salvation, and salvation belongs to the Lord. And this morning, I ask, what should you do when your soul is singing a song of troubled times? Look up. When your soul is in torment, when the world is crumbling around you, look up. Matt, uh, Psalm 121, 1 and 2. Chris read it a few minutes ago. It's, I lift up my eyes to the mountains, and where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. When you are in the valleys of pain and the song of terrible troubles are coming around you, look up. I want to encourage you, when trouble time come, cry to the Lord with your troubles. Don't try to make him inward. And when you cry to him, and you feel like you cried too much to him, cry to him again. I promise you, he doesn't sit there going, Quit bringing me your troubles. When we go to him in faith with our troubles, it's like a father whose child is hurting right there, and, and this child comes up, Daddy, I'm hurting. And we go grab them up and hold on to them. Bring your troubles to the Lord, cry to him. Look to God for your protection and rely upon God for your reputation. Look to God for encouragement and sustenance, knowing that he is what allows you to lay your head and sleep, and he is what gives you strength to rise up again. Remember where your deliverance and your blessings come from, for victory comes from the Lord. That last verse of that psalm where he says, from the Lord comes deliverance. Many of your translations say, salvation belongs to the Lord. Because here's the thing. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He is the God of salvation, my friends. And he cares what's going on in your life. So when you're in the caves and in the valleys and you're crying out to the Lord, bring to him your woes and cry out to him. And then declare the praises of God. I want to let you know, in my life, 
the most authentic worship moments is when I did not feel like it. When I didn't feel like it and I knew he was worthy anyway. So sing those praises to God and declare them. And with a whispering, stammering tongue, as the old hymn says, sing the praises of God. And last, repeat. Do it all again. Don't stop. Look up. Why should we look up? Because he is the God who saves. That doesn't mean our circumstance is necessarily taken away. That doesn't mean the pain is automatically gone. That means he is the God who is there and he is the God who cares. He is the God who is there and he is the God who cares. He is the God who sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to come to this earth and die for your sins and my sins, making the penalty for our sin. You all get that God died for us? That if we put our trust in him, we could be forgiven of our sins and cleansed of all of our unrighteousness? And he did that while we were messed up. And while we still mess up, he loves us. He is the God who cares. So this morning, I want to invite you to look up. And as I wrap up this message this morning, I don't know if I'm going to do it every single time I preach, but I want to invite you to memorize a verse this week. It's actually two verses. It's one I've shared a couple times today. Psalm 121, 1 and 2. I want to encourage you to memorize this. And as I'm encouraging you to memorize it, write it down, I want to encourage you to say it with me. Psalm 121, 1 and 2. Let's all say it together. I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Say it again. I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Memorize it. Let it burn in your brain. Because when you are in the times and the seasons of struggle, look up and call on the one who made the heavens and the earth. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we just celebrate that you are the God who saves. And you're the God who cares. And you are the one that we can run to when we are in pain. So Lord, as the psalmist here in Psalm chapter 3 saying, let us look to the one who delivers for salvation belongs to the Lord. 
Lord, let us sing your praises in the storms of life and let us rest on who you are. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.